0: Welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. This podcast is by public service leaders for current and future public service leaders. If you would like to hear what the ministers and politicians are thinking, then there are numerous other podcasts where you can tune in to find out what their latest thoughts are. This podcast is about the inspirational people designing and leading frontline public services. This is about the people who do the real work. On the podcast, you'll hear from leaders from councils from within the NHS and other public services, and also those involved in policy development. I particularly try and find people who have interesting stories to tell and have achieved really difficult things in challenging circumstances and who have learned lessons along the way and uh, who are, are keen to share those lessons with others, because as I think as we all know, Public service leaders are not prone to shout about their achievements, but um, it is really important, especially now with so much pressure on public services, that those leaders do share the lessons that they have learned about what works and what indeed does not work. So I hope you enjoy it, and don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you don't miss any future episodes, and indeed you might want to catch up on some of the previous episodes. This week's episode is with Jane Lewington. Jane is the chief executive of Navigo, which is the mental health provider in northeast Lincolnshire. Navigo is an organization with 650 staff with a turnover of about 36 million. The interesting thing about Jane is that she actually started her career in the NHS as an A&E receptionist and worked her way up through the ranks, doing a number of NHS chief executive roles before landing in the Navigo role. Mental health as an issue has really shot up the agenda in recent years, but I don't think that many people know exactly how mental health services work in the UK. So Jane starts off by giving us a really good explanation of how those services work and how they all fit together. It's a really packed interview. So among other things, we discuss the integrated care system program, which is currently being implemented and how that's working how Navigo as an independent social enterprise is engaged in that we also talk about the general state of the nation in terms of mental health and the challenges which are likely to be coming up for mental health services in the next couple of years Jean also has some really interesting thoughts on what makes a place and how public services should be organised and what the right geographical footprint for organising local public services is. So that's enough of an introduction from me, so let's get over and hear from Jane. You're very welcome, Jane, and I really appreciate you taking the time to have this this conversation. I'm really excited about this one. Um, Out of all the interviews I've had, we haven't had one yet that's really focused on mental health, and I think that's Such an important issue. So many thanks for taking the time. As as always, it would be great just to start with a little bit from you about your background and where you're from and things like that.
1: Okay. Um, well, I I currently work in Grimsby, and actually I was born in Grimsby, so I haven't really travelled very far, um, which is actually quite unusual in the health service because people tend to move around, don't they, for their careers. But no, I was um, I was born. Uh, in Grimsby, but actually spent most of um the time I was growing up about it living in Lincolnshire in the middle of nowhere about 15 miles outside of of grimsby uh went to local schools and then I was the first uh person in my family to ever go to university right. uh, and I went down uh to the end of the country actually to the University of Sussex in Brighton um so I was down Hello. there. there Yeah, no way away, yeah. It was a a long journey in the 1970s. Um, (laughs) I was there for four years, I think. Um, And then I was always interested in a career in the NHS. I don't know why. Um, So my degree was in social administration. But when I came out of university, um, it was the time that Margaret Thatcher was in power. And we had three million unemployed. Right. And trying to get a job in the NHS was really hard. And it actually took me 18 months to do that. So I did various jobs uh, before I actually got into the NHS. But um,
0: you, you never give up that ambition to get... No, into-
1: no. I applied for the National Management Trainee Scheme and all of that. And um, I wasn't successful. So in the end, I, jo- I joined as a... I started my career as a receptionist in Ailey. That's, wow. that's how I started in the NHS. Um, and then I spent the last 13 years of my career in the NHS as a chief executive. So well, you can start as a receptionist, and, and you can get say
0: there. that people do say that actually that if you if you get in,
1: yes
0: you're in, and you're
1: in, yeah,
0: you, you can uh, you can find opportunities to yeah. move and eventually get to where you want to get to.
1: Yeah, and it depends I think who you meet during your career. I was, I was really fortunate to meet two or three people who had the biggest impact on my personal career. And the first was the guy who actually appointed me into the NHS because one of the reasons I wasn't getting in was I was viewed to be overqualified to come in as a clerical officer because I had a degree but not experienced enough because I'd never worked in the NHS to come in as a manager. So I was caught on this last bit and he just took a risk and he said, I know you won't stay with us very long, but he said, "Um, if I appoint you, will you do your diploma in health service management whilst you're with us? And that's what I did and I I never forgot that and it was very much an approach I took throughout my career when I was interviewing other people. Um, So he had a massive impact on me and he took the risk and I stayed there I think I was in that first role for about three years. So.
0: And you, you were saying there about being overqualified at, at that time. Having a degree was not as common as it is now. No,
1: no, no, no. The numbers of people going to university was far, far smaller than it than it is now.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so yeah, it was it was quite challenging. So, but yeah, I always remember him uh, in terms of taking that risk. And and I, I found out later. I think there was three on the interview panel. And he was the only one that wanted to appoint me, but he managed to persuade the others.
0: <laughs> and so you then did your diploma whilst you
1: I worked. did, yeah. Whilst I was working as a clerical officer,
0: yeah. And, and that equipped you to move up the ladder, yeah.
1: And it, and um, you know once you as you say once you're in the NHS, it's then much easier to move on to to other jobs, but quite yeah. difficult to get in initially,
0: yeah. Yeah, and then so when was your so you moved your way up in the management? structure so when yeah. when was your first chief executive post
1: um that was in um oh gosh 2000 yeah yeah that was when primary care trusts were yeah. first created and i at the time i was working as a director in an acute hospital and i applied to be chief executive of a primary care trust in North East links in grimsby because they were one of the first wave of primary care trusts now. So, were-
0: so for people who because that's, I mean, gosh, I don't know how many reforms and reorganisations that is a go, but primary care trusts, can you just say what they Well, they
1: were like bigger CCGs, really. Yeah, yeah that's what were the same thing, very much driven by primary care, a commissioning function, but they could also deliver services as well. Yeah. So they held the commissioning budget for an area in just the same way as CCGs. So, yeah. um, very, so they were the precursor, really, to CCGs and... Um, I think probably it was the best year I had in the NHS was the first year as a primary care trust because um, the NHS set us up on the 1st of April 2000. There were 17 of us and that ended up being 350 over the next two years. But the 17 of year one and on the 2nd of April 2000, they forgot we were there. (laughs) And it was fantastic. So we never got asked for a performance report. We never got performance managed. They weren't interested in them. It was wonderful. They just simply forgot we were there. And I think I probably did more redesign and transformation in that one year than I probably did in the the whole of the other time I was in charge of that PCT.
0: Gosh, there's a lesson there. I'm not entirely sure what it is for... (laughs) Managers, but it's something to do with autonomy.
1: Well, do NHS England, I think, Andrew. Really.
0: Right. Okay. <laughs> so you had that chief executive post, and then was that was was that the post that you were in when before you moved across to Navigo? No, that, no. Sorry, no, of course it wasn't, because primary care costs no. were abolished. Yeah, all.
1: primary care. I I left. I think December two thousand and ten. I left my chief exec job when we then become. Um, <laughs> I then transformed us from a primary care trust into a care trust. Right. So we'd taken on adult social care responsibility from the local authority. And I left there in December 10 and moved to be Deputy Chief Executive in a very large acute hospital provider that covered the whole of Lincolnshire. So we provided yeah. the hospital care in Lincoln, Boston and grant uh, them so I went as deputy and then in to end of 2012 I became the chief executive then. so that was december 12 march 13 3 months later we were in special measures on the back of the Keogh mortality review right so i spent the next 2 years taking us out of special measures and and then then i decided i'd know enough i retired at that point <laughs> um and um so I was, I'd i always been a non-executive director for Navigo ever since they started in 2011. Um, and they asked me if I'd become the chief executive because the current chief executive decided to step down. Yep. And so I said I'd do it for two years and five years later I'm still here.
0: <laughs> Very, good. Very good. No, that's, well,
1: that, a really that's good, me, really. That's yeah, me.
0: no, that that's a really good, rich explanation of your background there, and I think we've all got a, a really good idea of who you are and where where you've come from. Before getting into what Navigo actually does, yeah. I want to talk about mental health services and mental health yeah. a little bit because it has shot up the agenda in recent years exactly. as we all become much more aware mm. of mental health, um, and I, I'm not sure everybody. Understands how mental health services work and how they are structured. So, would you mind explaining that, please?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no, (laughs) I will do. I'll I'll start with a bit of history because mental health services looked radically different. Um, when I first worked in mental health services in 1984, how far are we going back? Um, and in 1984, all mental health services were provided in large, horrible, institutions, thousands of beds, very little in terms of community services and there was a, a massive policy drive in the 1980s called care in the community, backed with money to radically shift care mental health care out of these large institutions and out into into the community and into ordinary, ordinary living and on the back of that shift, something else happened. What happened is that the organisations that provide mental health services are quite different to the physical health part of the NHS. So in the physical health part of the NHS system, you will go to a GP. You might then need to see a consultant. So Mm -hmm. you'll be referred up to the hospital And and that's a different organisation. And then you'll have a different organisation, say if you need the district nurse to come in and see you after you've been discharged from hospital. So you've got lots of different organisations in that pathway. Mm. For mental health, it's very different. Mental health provides integrated care. So as a mental health provider, you will provide primary care services. It's known as improving access to psychological therapy. So it's for... It's to help people cope with low-level anxiety or depression, for example. And anybody can just walk in and be seen um, by an IAP service. So it's a primary care service. But we also provide the acute hospital bit. If you're in an acute crisis, we run 24-7 um, urgent care response, if you like, for mental health. We can so have mixed... Jim,
0: when, r- when you say we, are you talking about Navigo? No, every, every We're sorry, health everything. Sorry, everything. So we, every. are, we, the yeah. health service, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: Service. So most mental health providers, and many of them are very big organisations covering large geographies, um, they will provide that primary care service. They'll provide the crisis response, which is the equivalent of our A&E, if you like, mm-hmm. so 24-7. They'll have inpatient units where you can come in for acute care. But also they can care for you in the community, either as a way of preventing a discharge or providing community support once you have been discharged from the unit. So their their whole system, organisations, so it's very different to like the physical health care um, sector. Um, and I think there's a lot to be learnt mm. by the physical health care sector about that transformation that mental health services went through and how did they manage that and and how does it operate and what are some of the benefits and there are some downsides but there are some benefits as well. I think the big challenge that nationally mental health providers have now is how do they then integrate much more better
0: with the physical
1: healthcare system because we still have big differences in life expectancy so yeah. if you are someone with a lived experience of a serious mental illness your life expectancy is likely to be 20 years younger than somebody else 20 years less than somebody yeah. else so there's a big issue about how we better join up the work of mental health organisations and primary care and hospitals really
0: yeah well wow. no that's a that's a great explanation thank you for that and then Navigo then, so where does Navigo fit into all of that? So, so uh, as I said in my introduction to, to this, Navigo is uh, what what was known as a spin-out. So yeah. was was yeah. part of the NHS, is now an independent social enterprise. So what role is Navigo playing in the system that you've just described?
1: Right, well, we're doing everything that I've just described. So we are the, the provider of NHS mental health services for our bit of the world in North East Lincolnshire, both for adults and for older people. So we provide that primary care service in terms of psychological therapies. We have acute um, wards. We run the 24-7 crisis service and we have the full range of community teams that can support either either younger people, like, say, a young person going through the first episode of psychosis, Mm -hmm. uh, someone who may have a more established serious mental illness who needs ongoing support out in the community. So we do exactly the same as NHS mental health organisations. We just cover a much smaller patch. Yeah. yeah. Um, And that, I think, is, is the biggest difference. We uh, do provide some specialist services as well. We have a specialist eating disorder unit, for example. Um, but because we're not just an NHS provider, we also hold the adult social care contract for mental health. So we are a health and wellbeing organisation. So we're responsible for providing the social care support to people with a lived experience of mental health. And that, I think, has affected our our Ethos, really, the whole way that we approach things as an organisation.
0: So, in a different part of the country, what you do might be provided by an NHS mental health trust.
1: It, it mu- yes, some of what we do would would be provided by um, an NHS mental health trust, but a lot of what we do you won't see in an NHS organisation.
0: So that would be more on the council side. That's
1: on the more on the well-being side around the emphasis that we put. Um, We we talk about um, the three pillars of public health, so we're very much, we're a member organisation, so everybody who uses our services or cares for someone with mental health has an opportunity to become a member of Navigo and have a big say in what we do and the decisions we make. And the way that we engage people, we're very much a co-production organisation, so it's working in partnership with the people who use our services. And for what they say to us as individuals and what they say to us as a group, we really understand that some of the bigger challenges that people with a lived experience of mental health face in wider society, be that about accessing decent accommodation, accessing a job, education and training, or just making social connections, really. Yeah. Um. And so we put a really big emphasis on what is it that we can do to really help people have the best chance of recovering, from an episode of mental illness and and really going on to living a fulfilling life. And so we talk about those three pillars of public health, somewhere to live, somewhere to work and someone to love. And a lot of our energy and a lot of our services are devoted to those three pillars of public health.
0: Very interesting. And delivering both NHS and council services, does that give you a grip on more of the levers that you might need to pull in order to achieve that.
1: Yeah, and and, and particularly um, a different way of approaching the care for people with far, far less reliance on admitting people into hospital. So it's a much stronger emphasis on the preventative things that you can do. Um, so you may have somebody who traditionally has presented at our acute unit five or six times a year for an admission, but from the work that we do with them and the way that we support them after discharge in terms of providing uh, placements, work placements in the organisation, opportunities to volunteer, activities and groups, that, that person may never get admitted again. Or may only ever get admitted when they are really, really poorly and need our help and support. So we have a low rate of admission and we have one of the shortest lengths of stay in the country well. um, in our acute units. And more recently, because of the increasing demand for mental health services over recent months, there's a, a real pressure on NHS acute beds for mental health we've always had beds and in fact we're providing beds for patients from other areas because they can't be admitted locally yeah um, and it, and we think it's because we take that broader view around the kind of support that you can provide with to somebody
0: yeah and then so if just for for people listening is you know i think we're all much more aware of mental health now if you're feeling like you might be suffering or have a family member or friend who you think is suffering is is the route to go through the gp first of all or Uh,
1: in many in many parts of the country it would be traditionally but with covid things have changed quite significantly so in every single area of the country now there will be a 24-7 all-age support line for mental health and anybody can ring either for themselves or on behalf of someone else and you will get a response Right. Um, and you will be signposted either to some low-level support maybe from a well-being team at the council or into an IAP service, or if necessary, you'll get a full crisis assessment. So everybody should be able to ring a free phone number in their area and access that support. Right. Most crisis services, which are staffed by your secondary care mental health um, specialists or, or professionals, Traditionally, um, are at, in most parts of the country are accessed by referral from a GP or if you walk into an AE department. Ours is different. It's always been a walk-in service. So mm-hmm. anybody can walk into our crisis service 24-7 and, and be seen and assessed.
0: Okay. Um we're going to come on later to talk about the new integrated care systems and, and how oh. they're organised and things, but just yeah. at, at a very local on the ground level, how do your services interact on a day-to-day basis with general practitioners, community care?
1: Um, well, primary care, I mean, we've really developed, I think, much closer working over the last couple of years, and particularly with the new um, primary care networks, the PCNs.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: there are three PCNs, ones,
0: just for, for listeners, are larger groups of...
1: of general, so you'll have um, individual general practices who are coming together yeah. into primary care networks. They're being given... Um, identified funding directly as primary care networks to increase the range of services that you can access in general practice. So over the last year, for example, every primary care network has had um, money to appoint their own pharmacists, for example. Um, they've had money for social prescribing going into PCNs, and they will be receiving money mental health practitioners next year so it's encouraging individual general practices to think about how by working together they can really increase the range of services that you can access in the community and don't need to go into the hospital for it yeah. so yeah. yeah
0: so it's not it's not that primary care network level yeah. where you interact with
1: we do network. yeah so um what we're doing is is there are three of the of the networks in in our area And we're reorganising all of our community services so that they are organised and aligned with those three primary care networks so we can develop a single multidisciplinary team to support general practice. Um, And we're we're really keen to ensure that we don't duplicate. So um, training up my staff, some of our advanced clinical practitioners, in their physical health skills so that if they're going in to see somebody because they're part, they're part of the memory service, for example, or an older person part of the memory service, that they're not just going in to do a, a memory review. Mm. But actually, if that person is also suffering from diabetes, they can do the routine foot check at the same time. So, so reducing the number of people going into everyone's house by actually skilling up the staff so they can do more than one thing when they're actually seeing somebody so we're doing a lot of work around that um, and everybody who's got a serious mental illness should be on a register with their GP and if you're on that register you should be getting a physical health check every year um, and um, our performance in North East Lincolnshire wasn't good so we're working with the GPs and now we're, we're actually taking on that work so we're Working with them to validate their registers, so we've got a single register for North East Lincolnshire, and then the team that does our physical health checks for the people we look after, they're actually going to deliver those physical health checks for people registered in general practice. So, we're doing some very practical things really with with primary care.
0: Okay, Um, so, We couldn't have this interview without talking about COVID nineteen and the impact that that's oh, had for no. the
1: past
0: <laughs> year. Um. So, how have your your team coped over the last year?
1: Um. I mean, it was very stressful early on in March when when it, when it just hit the whole country. Um. But I mean, we just went into immediate kind of what we call our incident management mode. So. Um, we were meeting every day not just the very senior managers but we would have the managers of every team we would meet every day um to to develop our plan and i think i'm proud to say we moved very fast so we moved all of our services uh where they needed to 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 be to a digital offer within 10 days so we became well. digital in 10 days
0: did, did um, you really have some sort of basis to, to make that move or was it all no, brand
1: new? No, it was all brand new we did oh, wow. it, okay. and we did it in 10 days. And um, we're incredibly proud of that, you know, and that included the crisis service, you know, the way you contact them and everything. But one lesson we learned very, very early on was the importance of ensuring that if somebody new was being referred to us um, or that, you know, they were coming back for a new episode of treatment, the first time we see them, you must see them face-to-face. So throughout the pandemic, we, if you're a new patient, you were seen face-to-face for that comprehensive assessment. Yeah. And then we would make a decision based on risk as to whether your follow-up needed to be face-to-face or it could be done digitally or over the telephone. Um, we had to set up isolation units on our acute areas so that if someone was admitted, they could be tested for COVID before moving. So we had to reconfigure. I mean, my staff haven't worn uniform for 30 years. You just don't wear uniform in mental health services at all. So they're all in scrubs. I mean, it was a real culture shock to mental health, really. Um, so we set up the 24-7 all-age mental health COVID support line, like every other area. You had to have it in place by the sixth of April. I think we got ours up and running by the end of March, but we did it locally with the council. We worked with our local council, and um, we, we worked very closely with their well-being workers. We lo- worked yeah. with Think and Mind and a range of voluntary organisations to really get that up and running. Um, I think our biggest single challenge was access to the personal protective equipment, the PPE. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, um, NHS England had given a list of providers to the NHS supply chain to say, these are all the organizations that need to receive PPE. So push, push it out to them. They weren't ordered, just push them out. They'd left every social enterprise off the list. Right. So we had a, we battled away. It took about, I think, four to five weeks to get back onto the list um i mean just
0: just so so people know and people will know who've listened to these interviews because we've we've spoken to colleagues in in provide and wow. and other areas and in parts of the country, social enterprises, particularly northeast links actually play huge roles in yeah, health yeah. system
1: yeah
0: i mean
1: i, mean, I think it's thirty percent of all community nursing services are provided by social enterprises across the country. Yeah, so this is so- part of the system to forget, really. Yeah. Um, but um, we had a weekly COVID meeting in North East Links involving every provider, health mm-hmm. and social care. And of course, it wasn't just us being impacted. Care homes couldn't get PPE, home care, GPs, they couldn't get PPE. Um, so we set up a, a WhatsApp group so we were supporting mutual aid, you know, can, have you got can yes. you lend some gloves, have you got any apron? So we were swapping the stuff around. And then in the end, Navigo took on the role for the whole of the health and social care community uh, to actually buy, store and distribute all of the PPE. Wow. So we so we did that uh, for the whole... So for Lincoln which
0: community? Sorry, do you mean... With
1: Northeast North East Lincolnshire. So Lincoln, all of the so care sure. homes, all of the home for care health
0: products, health. For better or for worse said, right, we'll just
1: yeah, we'll what,
0: just. Do you, know, it. you probably thought one organisation needs to take the lead on. Yes.
1: Yeah, somebody yeah. 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 needed to take the lead, and the GP individual GP surgeries weren't going to be able to do it. So we covered the GPs, GP out of hours, the hospice, uh, all the, comm- the community nursing provider, um, the care homes, the home care providers. So we did it all, and then in October the council were also looking after some services so we took that on as well and we're still doing it today we don't procure it now but we still store and distribute all of the ppe across north east links so so yeah and it it did make a big impact because you you do hear some horror stories don't you about the the troubles and the problems that care homes were having particularly during that first lockdown in accessing ppe but 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 hopefully you, you won't hear a similar story for North East Links because we did work very hard to support everybody. That's
0: really interesting. What about your staff team themselves, though? I mean, I haven't spoken to any leader who hasn't had a challenge with their team who, who are dealing with this crisis professionally and personally.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they 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 were absolutely fantastic, really. I mean, the way the whole staff just responded and, and took it on. Um, had been amazing, and, and, and front and centre for us was how do we support our staff throughout all of this? Yeah, we were very lucky during the first wave because North East Lincolnshire's in level of COVID was very low compared to the rest of the country. We got caught out in the second wave. That's when it really hit us. Right. First, so we had, we were fortunate. We had a bit longer than other areas to learn because the the big numbers didn't come through until the the second wave. but um, So we set up weekly staff webinars, digital, for all of our staff. We were doing detailed individual risk assessments for staff. We supported our BAME community by getting vitamin D testing and prescribing vitamin D where that was needed. Mm. And we worked with the GPs to, we were really worried about our most vulnerable service users those who would really struggle um, to, you know, take up an offer of help from the council and things. And so together we worked with the local GPs and we identified about 350 people who were known to us and known to general practice who we felt between us were going to be particularly vulnerable. Um, And so I used some of my shielding staff and some of my volunteers and we had a, a vulnerable support team and basically... They made regular phone calls at least twice a week to every single person on that list and yeah. we did food shopping and we collected prescriptions and we provided emotional support as well and we've only just actually stood that team down, so it's operated for over a year.
0: I mean that that's really interesting because doing food shopping is not in your contract of no. services.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you were clearly going above and beyond there.
1: Yeah, but I think that's because we run a garden centre that has a cafe, and whereas uh, the shops couldn't, you couldn't get certain items, could you? Yeah. Um, actually, the wholesalers had loads of stuff because all the cafe, the cafes and restaurants had shut, so we we didn't have a problem with our supply chain in the same way that the shops were doing. So yeah. we were able to 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 get goods and, and put bags together and take them round to people, which is so great. the
0: yeah the I imagine the suppliers were only too happy to have. Of a customer
1: yeah But well, if yeah. you think about a very practical example self-raising flour yeah everybody started baking didn't they Andrew? and you couldn't yeah. get flour for lots of money but <laughs> the wholesalers were sat on ma- masses of, of self-raising flour that wasn't the problem they couldn't get it bagged into the smaller bags for the supermarkets so if you bought a big bag of self-raising flour you could get it wherever you wanted it and that's, that's what
0: I, I didn't I didn't think about it in that way but yeah yeah
1: yeah. yeah, it's because yeah. they only normally bag up a very small percentage of their flour into the small bags for supermarkets. Most of it is in big bags for cafes and restaurants.
0: That is very interesting. Very interesting. So, just to 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 take a step back or away and just think about society in general. I mean, obviously, COVID nineteen has yeah. had a big impact on people's mental health, both yes. generally. For everybody, mm. and particularly as you've already mentioned, people with pre-existing mental yeah. health conditions. What do you think that impact is, or ha- have we seen the impact of it yet?
1: No, I, I think we'll be seeing the impact for the next two to three years, if not longer, really. Um, and you, we're, we're starting to see the impact now, um, and it's affecting everybody, isn't it, in different ways. If you think about people who've been shielding, or, you know, that feeling of self-isolation and loneliness isn't good for your mental health. If you're anxious about, well, I'm furloughed now, but actually, am I going to have a job at the end of furlough, or am I going to be redundant? So, high levels of anxiety, which can be accompanied by depression. If you think about young people, I mean, goodness me, their lives have just been thrown up in the air, haven't they? If you think about exams and getting to university um so again very anxious about their future so i th- i think we will see um a lot of um anxiety, general anxiety and depression i think for people who've been directly impacted by covid and i'm particularly thinking of a lot of the staff who work in hospitals acute hospitals and in care homes um i'm sure that many of them will experience um that post traumatic syndrome um, You know, I'm, I'm just thinking about some of the care homes in our area where, and the staff in care homes get very close to the residents because they're working with them for a long time, aren't they, yeah. day in day And suddenly to lose so many residents from one home over such a short period of time is very traumatic for the yeah. staff. So I th- I think the impact of COVID in terms of mental health it it, it is numerous and it's going to be very different for individuals. And it's going to hit our system, both in terms of our primary care offer, um, but also in terms of people with pre-existing mental health conditions. What we experience is that many of them put off seeking help because yes. they were nervous and worried about COVID. So when they did present, they were more poorly and yes. they needed to stay in hospital longer. Um, but I think that the people that we really need to make sure we support over the next two to three years, are those staff who work in those care sectors yeah. who really were supporting those who were most acutely ill with COVID and, and how traumatic that was?
0: Yeah. I mean, as a, as a mental health professional and leader, do you have some sympathy with those who were making the case that controlling COVID is not the only concern here? There, there are, you know, repeated lockdowns have a wider impact that we're going to be dealing with as a country for a long time. Some some people were saying that and it was quite difficult to kind of fight through the politics of it. Um, yeah, because yeah. people who were sometimes making that case. But from what you're saying, I mean, it, it does seem obvious that it's not a zero-sum game
1: no no and and you know you, you you have to do what you have to do to control the pandemic don't you and it was those decisions were never going to be easy no. um and we all became armchair experts didn't we on the back of the daily briefings in terms of what we would do if we were in charge um but i don't think any of us would want to be the person actually making the decision at the end of the day because there are so many Um, competing priorities weren't they but you know lockdown was one of the solutions and it was probably in my view it was necessary we had to do something but at least now I think we're recognising that there has been a mental health impact of the measures that we've had to take um, and the the economic um in you know, whether the how the economy recovers from this and how quickly it recovers may also continue to have an impact on people's mental health in the future and at least i mean one of the massive positive surely is at least we're having this conversation
0: yeah You know,
1: in in a very open way in the you know i can't remember the like of it in terms of where mental health is front and center in terms of the national debate about what we need to focus on which can only be really good in terms of the level of investment that comes into mental health services because it's been underinvested for years. So
0: um
1: it's all for the good in that sense, really.
0: Indeed, indeed. So as well as being in the midst of a pandemic, um, we're, we're also well into another NHS reorganisation. You talked earlier about primary care trusts and they were eventually abolished yeah. and all the rest of it, but we're now several reforms later, but we are in the midst of quite, quite a big reorganisation, the cornerstone of which is the creation of the so-called integrated care systems or, or ICSs. So how have you found engaging in this process and do you feel that Navigo is well placed because some social enterprises that I speak to feel threatened, mm. sidelined during mm. this process. So first of all, just how is it going where, where you are and how do you feel your is placed?
1: Right. Okay. Thanks. Um, it's been quite a long journey, hasn't it? Because I, I was trying to remember <clears throat> and I couldn't when STPs first started. There was, there was a strategic. Oh. Partnerships, can yeah. you remember? And they, and they, m- much more recently, they. I've,
0: I've got started, 2018 in my head, but I don't know. Yeah,
1: that. it might have been 18. It's they've been going that for three years, haven't they? Yeah. So this seemed a bit of a never-ending, the slowest reorganisation in history, I think. And it's got. Um, I think the sad thing for me is that when those STPs did start, it was very much about bringing all of the organisations together to collaborate, to do things in a different way and to develop solutions themselves. But there is something about the NHS, it just can't resist a reorganisation, can it? So so actually what we've now done is it's to become far more of a formalised process. And when you introduce that formality, it starts to turn into building performance management structures and we're going to contract in a different way and commission. I thought, oh my God, they've NHS'd it. You know, there was a real golden egg there. they would really got a kernel. I thought of doing something radically different, but I, but I think we've lost that. So we are where we are. Um, I, I can't complain in terms of how we've been engaged in the process because we have been, um, fully engaged. We've always been invited to all of the, the partnership meetings with the ICS. Um, that doesn't mean it's not without its challenges. It is. And, you know, we work extremely well with the vast majority of organizations within that partnership. But you will always have (coughs) individual organizations who don't quite get the new message, which is about how you collaborate. This isn't Mm -hmm. about competition. It's about collaboration. And it isn't about the size of your turnover. This is, it is about how we do things together. Yeah. Um, and who, and who still look at your organization and think, well, how can we take them over or how can we become the lead provider? And then we subcontract to them. So, and, and you just have to be aware of that and manage those politics as best you can within your individual ICS. I think we are fortunate because we are in an ICS that's got three social enterprises. So yeah. together we're quite a significant chunk of the spend um and you know and we're all good and well-performing organizations as well which which you know does does no harm i think in terms of uh, for me i think ics is to be successful it needs to be built on the success of their constituent parts which is the place the locality um for our um ICS because we're a big one geographically, Humber Coast and Vale are enormous. We've got the whole of North Yorkshire, we've got York, and then the whole of the Humber region as well. Um so we've got six places linked to local authority boundaries. Mm. Um and I for me it's about how do we ensure that um it's it's at place level where we're really gonna drive the integration of care, isn't it? Where you bring general practice, community nursing, mental health and aspects of the acute hospital together to do it differently. You're not going to integrate a 1.5 million population. If we think we are, we're just deluding ourselves. It's going to be a place. But there are things where the providers in a single sector, like mental health or like acute hospitals, they do need to work together. Because there are services where you do need that bigger scale or that bigger population to make sure you can deliver the specialist teams that you need and to deliver the best outcomes. Mm. Uh, And for me, the the trick is going to be how you manage. It's going to be a matrix, I think, within each ICS. So you have some delegation of, of money and authority to the provider collaboratives that will be an acute hospital or mental health and then you'll have delegation to place. Well, how does place and the provider collaboratives work together? How yeah. do we manage that relationship? I think is going to be key. Yeah. Now, wh- where I think I'm fortunate is that although they get fed up of hearing from me, because I'm never mm-hmm. very quiet in a meeting, at least we do get to all those meetings where they, where they are shaping their thinking about yep. how this will work really. And and certainly I'm really very, very positive about what we're doing at place. And so we're we're moving to a shadow integrated care partnership from July of this year, so next month. Um and we and that's being hosted by the local authority. So they're taking the place lead, um, working with the ICS. So I, I'm very positive about place. Um, but recognise we've got some challenges in how we make the whole system work together coherently.
0: Yeah, the integrated care system, that's concerned with strategy, population health strategy, commission. The integrated care partnership is the delivery bit. Yeah, delivery, yeah.
1: Yeah. So an integrated care system will replace all of the clinical commissioning groups, so they will get the money to buy all of the health care for their region. Uh, but they won't hold on to it at the ICS. They'll delegate that money out either directly to the providers in the provider collaboratives or to place.
0: Okay. Um, so one last question for you. Uh, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise as you are who wants to make an impact in the way that you and Navigo have?
1: My goodness mate. Um I think the first thing i think one of the lessons I learned early on it got me in a lot of trouble personally, but one of my biggest lessons was really be brave and don't look up, look out. So look out to your local community, engage with your local community, engage with the people who use your services and develop services and plans that are best for them because at the end of the day, that's who I feel I'm accountable to. Um, Although as a chief exec in the NHS, you have a formal accountability to the Secretary of State for Health, in real terms, I always felt I was accountable to the people of North East Lincolnshire in terms of what I delivered. So um, I, I never looked up, the system waiting to be told what to do, I, I looked outwards. And sometimes that brought me into conflict with the system, which I is imagine. probably a subject of a whole other podcast, but never mind. Yeah.
0: I mean, <laughs> no, let, let me ask you about that, Jane, because I imagine it did, because I think everyone who wants to join the public sector and progress wants to look out and starts with that motivation. And the system probably, in fact, well, I know this happens, Gradually grinds them down that they realize the only way to get things done, never mind progress, is to look up. How, how did you manage to?
1: Well, I think the first thing is you've got to be successful at what you're doing. Because yes. it's only um, by being, meeting you know, all the targets and things that you actually get any kind of permission and, and freedom of movement. Um, And then for me, it's it's the strength of partnership working. So what I wanted to do was very much based on North East Lincolnshire. And it was when we set up the Care Trust, so bringing health and social care together. That was not the national direction of travel at that time. It was about reducing the number of primary care trusts and making them bigger. Um, And what we did is um, local authorities can say a lot of things that you can't in the NHS. They're a very powerful ally. Um, And it's really important that you develop that relationship, certainly if you're working in the NHS. And what I did, I mean, it was career suicide if it went wrong. But what I did is I went outside the NHS system um, and we actually lobbied politicians, both at a local and a national level, because politicians are much more interested in innovation and change than actually the higher echelons of the Department of Health. So we went out of the formal bureaucracy and round into the political system um, and we got approval that way. That's how we actually did it. Very um, good. Yeah. Very good. So, so be brave. Look out. Don't look up. Um, yeah, be proactive in seeking ways to make a difference. It doesn't have to be the big things. Um, lots of things that we do at Navigo are small things, but which added together make a big difference for our local community. And by our community, we mean the people who use our services or the most vulnerable in our local community. So we work a lot with local charities and help them uh, to move forward as organisations because it actually brings, you know, brings a bigger benefit. So we take an anchor approach to how we work with with local that's,
0: parks. That's really interesting, actually. That's the health service equivalent of uh, what in sport you call marginal gains so yeah. cycling yeah. teams talk about you know just tiny little changes that when gotcha. you add them all up make the difference between a team winning and losing and it sounds yeah. similar
1: yeah, yeah. so I mean to give a very practical example one of our um, young volunteers she's someone with a lived experience of mental health uh, became aware of a local very very small charity run by a couple of women who were collecting together second-hand white goods to provide them for people who were moving into accommodation for the first time, usually youngsters who didn't have anything. And and this volunteer resonated with her because that was her position when she came out of the YMCA and she had nothing and she was moving to the flat. So she got talking and she realised that this charity was struggling with storage and checking. So she came to us and she said, because she knew we'd got accommodation, she said, would we store... white goods and could our estates department check the goods before they're handed out so that's what we're doing but it means that people who use our services who need those kind of white goods you know they can go to that charity and they can access them very easily so it's a bit of a win-win so it's lots of those small things Just thinking in a slightly different way i think uh trust and support your staff we we invest a lot of money in training our staff and the NHS, then, is very good at not trusting them to do a good job. Yeah. So if you think how much it costs to do a degree and then a postgraduate degree and any qualifications, and then we think that they deliberately come to work to do a rubbish job. Well, I don't think people, most the vast majority of people come to work to do a good job, don't they? So for me, it's really important about not just trusting yourself, but actively supporting them and listening to them about what can you do better as a leadership team to help them make a difference to the care that they deliver every day. And I think my final message would be about, um, although I talk a lot, actually the real importance of uh, what I call being a humble listener. It's not chief execs who have the ideas about what you need to change. It's people who deliver services and people in receipt of services really recognise what needs to happen to make this a much better experience, really. So it's about listening.
0: Fascinating. Jane, thank you so much for your time.
1: That's all right, Andrew. My pleasure.
0: Well, that was an absolutely packed interview and there are a ton of things to, to reflect on, but I just wanted to pick out a few. That conversation we had about the state of the nation's mental health and how there are a number of groups of people who actually we should be just keeping a very close eye on and supporting. So people who have been furloughed or have lost their job and are now very concerned about not being able to go back to work. Young people who have had their development interrupted. And then also Jane particularly talked about those operating within hospitals and care homes who will have been traumatized by the experience of the past 16 months and we really need to to keep an eye out for those people and support them where they're in our friendship groups and family groups jane has obviously lived through a, a wide range of nhs r- reforms and reorganizations and i thought her her comments on the most recent ics reforms were very in- interesting um particularly talking about the original stp's back i think in 2018 and how they started very positively it felt like a new way of doing things but actually as the system has started to think about the the implementation of some of those thoughts as the integrated care system it's in her own words has become nhs and it's quite managerial there's performance management structures and she feels maybe that it's lost a little bit of that innovation that was there at the start and then finally right at the end jane talks about a lesson that she's learned um, being the importance of looking out not up in the system so always look out to the service users and the communities who you are serving and she acknowledged that within The public sector, as within any organization, that is a challenging thing to do to keep that discipline of looking out rather than looking up to see what your immediate superiors are expecting of you and wanting you to do. And when we explored this a bit further, it was clear that uh, the best way to do this is from a position of strength where you have a high performing organization that you earn that permission to think differently and do things differently. So that's all for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. And don't forget to follow the podcast on either the website or on LinkedIn or Twitter so you never miss a future episode.